podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC Africa correspondent, and my co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, who heads up Africa Risk Consulting. We both live, breathe and work African affairs, and our podcast seeks to shed light on a continent which continues to fascinate and draw us in. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Good to talk to you. We've got a really interesting guest on today's podcast as we dig into the world of green energy. And we ask, why is Kenya achieving greater levels of sustainability than countries like South Africa? Zanelli Mbata, who is the CEO of Bambili Energy, she's in the hot seat and here's a flavour of what she has to say. It doesn't serve us to become green zilliards you know, where we just think we need to be totally green tomorrow and by any means necessary. I I think that will only serve to undermine progress uh, because then we don't take everybody on the journey and we don't do it in a sustainable way. Should be an interesting one. I think we're going to learn a lot about that, Tara. Absolutely. I can't wait. First, though, let's take a look at some of the stories that have been in the news since our last podcast. Niger's military coup leaders have arrested four more government ministers. That's according to the party of detained President Mohamed Bassoum. Those arrested include the ministers for oil and mining, as well as the head of the party's executive committee. Vladimir Putin says Russia will provide free grain to six African nations in the coming months. The Russian president made the promise during a summit with African leaders in St. Petersburg. Greece is bracing itself for another day of intense heat with wildfires continuing to rage. The worst affected areas are the islands of Rhodes and Evia, where the fires have been burning for days. At least six people have been killed in clashes between police and demonstrators at a banned opposition protest that went ahead on Wednesday. Crowds in and around Nairobi demonstrating against new tax hikes had tear gas fired upon them by police. Twitter's iconic blue bird could be about to be culled. Owner Elon Musk has said it was going to be replaced with a logo depicting the letter X. That's the name that he wants to use for the so-called everything app that he's trying to build on the foundations of Twitter. Well, as we record this, and as you've just heard, the West African state of Niger is reeling after an attempted coup by members of the presidential guard. President Mohamed Bazoum has been held as soldiers acting for the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, the CNSP, say they've been forced to intervene and seize power because of what they described at a news conference as the continuing deterioration of the security situation and poor economic and social governance. Yes, Karen, and the international response has been robust. The African Union, the regional bloc, ECOWAS and Western nations have all condemned the coup attempt. But interestingly, Niger's neighbours have remained silent. Perhaps this is not a surprise when both Burkina Faso and Mali, which are its immediate neighbours, have both had their own military coups in recent years. 
But this latest development shows into sharp relief the significance of Niger. Yeah, now Niger, despite its relatively small population of, what, 27 million, is of course of enormous global importance strategically, militarily and financially. Now, strategically, Tara, Niger's been something of a beacon of stability, hasn't it? After its return to democracy, after a post-independence history of military rule in 2011. It's been considered a positive democratic story. Surveys have shown that Niger is one of the countries where the population's actually been pushing hardest for democracy and people have indicated that they really don't want a return to military rule. They don't. We saw people come out onto the streets almost immediately Mm. to demonstrate against this new military intervention. But the country's really been hard hit by the legacy of Western intervention in Libya, which, you know, is the source of all of of these problems, Mm. I think. And the fall of Gaddafi, where many of the former, former Libyan leaders, presidential guard, who hailed from the Sahel, and now, Karen, as you remember, the Sahel is that desert area yeah. of northwest Africa, yeah, yeah. and they returned to their homeland, including Niger. And the bodyguard, they were armed and radicalised and have been waging an Islamist insurgency in the west of the country ever since. Yeah. From a military point of view, Niger has also provided a base for French forces that were expelled from neighbouring Mali after Mali's military coup. And it's an important staging post from which the US executes its counter-terrorism operations in conjunction with the Nigerian military. But despite this growing instability in this region, and after 10 years of counter-Islamist activities in Mm. Niger's troubled neighbour, and by that, Karen, I mean Mali, France is still going ahead with a long-billed plan to cut the number of soldiers it has stationed in the region. Yeah, and Tara, those cuts are particularly surprising, aren't they, given Niger's importance in particular to the French energy sector. Now, as you know, Niger is a big producer of uranium. It's used by the French nuclear industry, in particular the nuclear power company Arriva, and any instability in Niger could pose a direct threat to France's legendary energy independence, which is, of course, based on nuclear energy. So there's a very real worry that in light of this coup attempt, if a political power vacuum exists, the Russians, in the shape of the Wagner mercenary group, we've talked about them a lot, they're now supposedly incorporated into Russia's armed forces, they could potentially move in, support the rebels and control access to those minerals. And that's not coming out of nowhere, Karen. Mm. We remember that the Russians are already well established in West Africa's other uranium producing country, the Central African Republic. Yeah. So, you know, there's strategic importance and strategic activity going on. And to add to the strategic importance, there's the finance side. Niger is a member of the franc zone, one of 14 countries in West Africa that uses a French-backed currency called the CFA. This currency is seen as by many as an instrument of neo-colonial power, and in fact it is a touchstone issue with which on which France's enemies can easily capitalize. And it's true that the currency was how France, how post-independence France bound its former colonies to itself alongside treaties that allowed for these military bases. Yeah, it's so interesting, but a very restive part of the world. 
We'll move now to South Africa. Another story which grabbed my attention is about the former South African leader, Jacob Zuma. He's in Russia, where, as we record this, he's allegedly receiving treatment for an unspecified medical condition. Mr Zuma, of course, is meant to be serving a 15-month jail term in South Africa for contempt of court for failing to cooperate with an inquiry into grand corruption, which we call state capture here. And despite some legal chicanery, the courts in South Africa have ruled that he must serve his time in jail. Yes, and rather bizarrely, Mr Zuma has also reinvented himself as a green lobbyist, it seems. Mm. He attended a conference on carbon credits in Zimbabwe and wait for it, as a member of the board of, a Bel- of the Belarusian African Trade Association. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Karen, Belarus is a close ally of Moscow's and Zuma's cozying up to Russia is causing some disquiet, given that South Africa is going to the polls next year and there are fears of Russia, Russian meddling. Indeed. Watch this space. Sorry, it's a bit Russia-tastic during this podcast today, but very much in the news. You're listening to The Ark Insider with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest today is a dynamic woman in the field of renewable energy. Zanelli Mbatha is the CEO of the South African firm Bambili Energy, which produces hydrogen fuel cell energy systems. In simple terms, green power storage systems. She's also a key player in building a new hydrogen-based ecosystem in South Africa, which can power trucks and buses and the like. Well, we'll learn a lot more, I think, in the next few minutes, Sonelli. But first of all, welcome to the Ark Insider. You're talking to me, Karen Allen, here in South Africa. Um, thank you. And Zanelli, you find me, Tara, here in France. Welcome. Thank you, Tara. So, Zanelli, on to the first question. I mean, I know very little about uh, hydrogen or any of its properties, but I was just wondering what specific part of the energy transition problem are you, are you solving? The areas that we are very focused on at Bambili Energy is around um, how do we solve energy insecurity for the African continent. You see there's over 600 million Africans with energy insecurity. Um, So the load shedding, for example, that we experience in South Africa is not unique to us. And we are looking at how do we use renewable energy, and in our case, um, hydrogen, um, to um, help with that transition to a much cleaner and greener uh, power usage both for the built environment for buildings and also in the mobility space for heavy-duty transport trucks and buses. Um, For example, in South Africa, over the past 10 years, they've been used as small backup units for the um, telco-based towers. Um, and, uh, And that's at a very small level, but they can be used as, uh, as as microgrids. When you talk about microgrids, is it a bit like hotspotting on a, on a phone that you create a, a central um, source that other other users can tap into? Yes. So it's, it's so in, in any given neighborhood, you're going to have a microgrid where the power moves um, to various homes 
or within a industrial site, for example, you'd have a power grid that provides electricity to the various buildings. Zanelli, just one of the things, you know, um, rewinding a bit, advances in hydrogen technology have been remarkable because I think many of people of my generation remember it very much as an unstable fuel source, one that is prone to be combustible uh, and so on. And so what has changed that has made um, hydrogen a go-to source of energy? So the thing we need to remember is that, um, you know, all flammable fuels are can have incidences from time to time. In the case of fuel cells today, it can be used very safely. Uh, we need to remember that uh, hydrogen fuel cells have been powering uh, space shuttles since the early 60s. And uh, right here at home in South Africa, we have one of our largest companies called Sussel, and they've been making and using hydrogen um, for many, many years. So hydrogen has been in industrial use for over 80 years. So the proper storage um, of hydrogen and the use of hydrogen um, has been um, has been used uh, for very long periods and continues to be used on a day-to-day basis and it's transported from one facility to another. So um, I think we can be at ease around the, the use of hydrogen um, as, 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 a, as an energy source going forward. And what sort of traction are you getting among public sector departments that might possibly procure the technology. I mean, I remember us having a conversation when we met previously about being able to power things like traffic lights, just being able to keep, you know, cars on the road, cars moving during times of of load shedding. Um, You know, are you finding that there is, you're pushing at an open door or is there some scepticism? I think it's more of... um making sure people uh, and our customers are knowledgeable about this technology and its and its uh, unique uses. And uh, coming specifically to uh, the, the public sector in South Africa, we have to remember that the South African government has been funding research in this area for many, for over 10 years, mm-hmm. um, and has come up with some very novel new technologies that are world-class that we as Bambili are uh, in the process of commercializing. Um, the second part is that um, most recently, we, the, the South African government uh, were very proud of the fact that they selected us to demonstrate 15 fuel cell systems uh, in South Africa in 2020, um, so that to create public awareness and knowledge about the technology. Um, so um, you see the, the, the fuel cell systems we work with um, use uh, platinum as a core metal, and which South Africa owns mm. 75% of the world's platinum. And the government wants to ensure that we beneficiate that platinum here in South Africa as much as possible. And fuel cell systems are a gateway around that beneficiation. So very strong South African government support. In terms of use cases by the South African government, uh, we have a situation where uh, most recently, they have um, come up with an RFI around the... What's an RFI? Uh, Sorry. Of, What's an RFI? Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for asking. It's request for information um, that they've put out in public to find out how they can create a, a, a green buildings program. Um, the South African government is the largest owner of Uh, real estate and buildings in the country. And so they are taking a portion of that and wanting to ensure that those buildings are using 
uh, a combination of green technologies. And specific, I mentioned this RFI because they in, in that RFI have also called for the use of fuel cell systems specifically, which is a very strong indication about their interest to be an adopter of that technology. Yes. So that's an extraordinarily positive story because, of course, obviously the international headlines and local headlines have been dominated by uh, the ESCOM drama. How does it relate to the ESCOM issue. Uh, You mentioned it's scalable, but is it scalable sufficiently to be able to contribute to the grid? Oh, absolutely. And that's where the microgrids come in because they can assist with issues of peak shaving, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, when the power is at the highest demand, you can integrate fuel cell systems. Um, At Bambili, we really believe in an energy mix. We think there is no one technology that can solve all our challenges um, and we don't and frankly I don't think that's where we want to go as a country because we have had a main technology that we've used which is a coal to electricity coal. Uh, mm. technology um, and um, uh, and, and, and I think moving from one technology straight into another would not serve us and um, we want an energy mix of a combination of technologies that are optimized in in the best way possible um, from an affordability because for the average South African this is still very very important and uh, and it is green as possible using some of the new novel technologies such as fuel cell systems which relatively speaking are not as cheap as ESCOM power today yeah. but we've seen what has happened with um, the use of of PV panels, uh, where you know, just 20 years ago, there was a niche, very expensive product. Today, a low-income household can afford to have a small panel on their roof to heat up their geyser. We believe novel technologies such as fuel cells are going to transverse a similar path. So, no, I really interesting sort of to feel so much positivity around this. And I, I you know, we're talking to on a day when the UN is talking about global boiling, not not global warming. And it's interesting because we often make comparisons with Kenya and South Africa. And it does feel that South Africa has been very slow um, in the game on this. You know, Kenya took, what, 15 years to transition and has a dedicated plan in terms of uh, building a, a, a green economy. Um, I think they're on 80% renewables at the moment. South Africa's got very, very uh, different ecosystem. It's got different vested interests. Why has it taken so long, do you think, for the conversation to even begin, the public conversation to even begin, and for that sort of sense of urgency to really sort of get traction? You know, I I believe that um, I, I, I think we must always make comparisons with trepidation, simply because countries face very different challenges internally. And uh, we have to uh, be always mindful of the fact that South Africa um, is a country with competing social challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that historically had some of the cheapest power in the world for yeah. many, many years yeah. um, with, an eco- with an economy that's anemic, that has, has very low levels of growth. And um, investments um, to shift to renewables has had to take the path it's, it's had to because um, to do that, it's not only 
the responsibility not only lies in the government's hands, it also lies in, in, in the private sector's hands in order to make the economics work and become affordable. Um, and the, uh, the, the REAP program that we've had in South Africa, um, it's, it's, it's taken time to be able to get um, solar prices to come to where they are in an open market. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a South Africa Inc. burden. Um, and to get both spheres of government and the private sector working in concert to help bring down that cost um, takes time and buy-in. Um, and, and also my point about earlier about that it's about an energy mix. And in South Africa, we, we, we have to trade carefully because we're not doing this on the back of a strong economy. Um, so therefore, we should be, I think, forward-looking and saying, we, what are the important lessons we have learned so far? And then how do we use those to make sure we gain further traction? But there's a lot of vested interest in the mining industry. There's a lot of vested interest in keeping fossil fuels sort of the dominant force here. Do you feel those those vested interests can be broken or appeased? Let's let's be more diplomatic sort of in the next 10 years. I think that my, my, my the the... the the vested interests um, uh, have a role to play. I, I don't think we arrive at a coal-free energy economy in South Africa overnight. I think it is a slow transition. Um, I think that... Um, um, and a just transition. You know, uh, this is the word that gets used a lot, isn't it? A just transition. Yes. So there are so many jobs that rely Absolutely. on it and livelihoods. Yeah. Absolutely, and and their jobs for uh, for their local economies at a regional level, at a city level, that are reliant on the coal industry. Um, that we need to be mindful and purposeful on how we do this. Um, but also, you know, there's just the larger reality that we mustn't uh, lose sight of of the fact that just recently the the, the 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 prime minister of the netherlands and the prime minister of denmark uh, paid a joint state visit to south africa and um there was a bit of a chuckle in the audience when um one of the speakers mentioned that the largest uh, export from south africa that these two countries have had is coal right now in 2023 um because you know Europe has been having their own energy crisis. Um, and, you know, as much as they are supporting us in the energy transition, uh, lately they've taken the pedal off the wheel because of their own energy crisis and they're, and, and they're using a lot of coal as we speak. So uh, it's a complicated picture. And I, and I like to look at it with a soft lens mm -hmm. because it's, it's competing interests um, and you want to have economic stability as you make this transition, which is paramount. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, you, there's a whole kind of geopolitical conversation that goes with the renewable debate, because, you know, we talk about this often on the on the podcast. You mentioned sort of the need for platinum. Obviously, South Africa is a, a big producer of, of platinum. But in terms of what else you need, where do you get it from? And, and is that a supply that you can be fairly certain you'll have access to for many years to come? Absolutely. So, you know, I think if you look at uh, uh, battery technology and the minerals that are required, and where those uh, where those minerals dominant in terms of uh, allocation and control. 
Um, so, so and, and hence my earlier point about this is a very complicated yeah. picture. You know, it's it's not it's not changing handbags. <laughs> <laughs> I love you that. Know, Such um, a great comparison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Switch to your Louis Vuitton for your for your Gucci. <laughs> well, for those who can afford those, no, I've my never dear. owned a handbag um, <laughs> in my life. So yeah, <laughs> so or a, or a pair of shoes, yeah. or you know. So I think that it's it's um it's 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 um as somebody said, you you've, you've got to walk and chew gum at the same yeah. time as you try and figure out how to get this mix properly. Um, you see the massive pushback in Europe at the moment. Uh, and the Dutch farmers are completely outraged that the Netherlands, in its renewable path, wants to decimate the farming industry in the Netherlands. Uh, within the EU itself, uh, in, in, in governing structures, um, around how this renewable journey is done, it has to be done with tremendous care and thoughtfulness. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, there is a great deal of despair amongst uh, particularly young people, say, in the United Kingdom, where there is evidence or a view that there is backtracking going on mm-hmm. as um, backtracking on climate climate change, you know, commitments. Mm-hmm. But I'm also very interested in, in what you have said about that you're, it's not just for South Africa. So what are your ambitions for the rest of the continent? Yes, I, you know, when we think about this business, um, it's, it's not a South Africa solution, it's an Africa solution. Um, we have a vast market that we exist within. And, and oftentimes being on the tip of the South African continent, uh, we lose sight of this. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, we believe that um, um, because of the, the chronic nature of power insecurity on the continent, that energy mix exists in most African countries. Uh, and in that energy mix, there's a role for hydrogen. Um, there are all kinds of technologies available today. One of our partners that we work with um, has a technology that uses waste um, to hydrogen, for example. So if you think in major African cities around the world, uh, there's a crisis on rubbish. Yeah. Is that biogas? <laughs> there's a crisis around. Yeah. Is that the biogas yeah, market? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's a steam reforming technology, so there's all kinds of different technologies available, um, and 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 you know I think that for me it's all about uh, steering in the right direction, um, and I think it, it doesn't serve us to become green zilliots, you know, where we just think we need to get we need to be totally green tomorrow, and and by any means necessary. Um, I, I I think that will only serve to undermine progress uh, because then we don't take everybody on the journey and we don't do it in a sustainable way. Um, Some people just believe we should only focus on green hydrogen. We believe you need to use the hydrogen that you have available today at a cost price that you can afford today so that you can be on the journey. Um, And so it's about that mix and it's about um, in the environment you're in, what makes the most sense. And I think that's what sustainability needs to look like. You've mentioned price a few times. Um, and so if we're looking at the range of uh, green tech uh, technologies that are contributing from solar panel to geothermal to hydro to to the hy- hydrogen cell, where does it sit within within that? So for the fuel cell systems um, are, are not as um, price competitive, as I said, with the, 
the the ESCOM grid in South Africa, nor are they price competitive with solar because solar, you know, um, nor are they price conservative, uh, com uh, competitive um, on the basis that these existing technologies have been around for many, many years. So uh, they've achieved economies of scale. They've been optim the technology has been optimized to bring down the cost. So fuel cell systems are sitting where solar was sitting, let's say, 15 years ago, where it is still a relatively inexpensive product. Um, however, you know, um, it the economics today, we're able to, for example, be competitive um, with uh, diesel generators. Um, and that has to do on a total cost of ownership where you're looking both at um, OPEX and CAPEX. So fuel cell systems, um, whilst their CAPEX might be expensive, their OPEX is very low because it's basically a chemical process that produces the electricity. Uh, there are very few moving parts, so the maintenance of it and the reliability of, uh, of the system is, is exceptional. And that's why we believe um, the adoption of this technology is, yeah. is, is where it needs to be today. And which other countries are you seeing attraction in across Africa? So uh, our, our singular focus is to build a very strong base um, in South Africa. Uh, but we um, we had conversations uh, with, um, with potential customers in Nigeria uh, and in Kenya um, who have expressed interest um, for, for certain niche markets, um, such as data centers, where you need, uh, where power is mission critical, such as data centers, um, hospitals, um, mining operations that run 24 hours a day. Uh, we think those are some of the early markets where we, um, we see green shoots that we're busy pursuing. No pun intended. Very exciting. Yeah. And hydrogen is everywhere, isn't it? So it's the source material is, is not going to run out, is it? Absolutely. It's in great abundance. <laughs> and I, I have to ask you this. You were a banker by background. How did you get into this into this area? Because you know you've got to you've got to have a quite a technical brain to to understand the different technologies and to be able to. And I'm saying this as someone who's a you know daughter of a pharmacist, so and I wrap my brains around my chemical equations. But just in terms of of where the interest came, what made you switch from being in the, in the banking industry across to energy? So um, in my uh, former life, I, I also ran a, a platinum mining company. Um, and so in, in, in my career, the, the twin areas of interest have always been finance and natural resources, which has included mining um, and energy. Um, so that's where I started my career on Wall Street doing mergers and acquisitions focused on natural resources. So I worked with some of the largest mining companies in the world and some of the largest energy companies yeah, in the world. Yeah. So anyway, to cut a, a very long meandering story, because some people have, some people, um, some people have uh, careers. Uh, some of us have just had journeys. Yes. So at some point I ran a mining um, a company, a platinum mining company, and, um, and it came across this big challenge we have around beneficiation of platinum in South Africa. And, um, and after uh, spending time uh, at the South African Reserve Bank, um, looking at various um, investment opportunities, came across uh, some core technology around fuel cells um, that I'm very proud to share that is South African developed IP mm -hmm. uh, that uh, required commercialization that happened to use platinum that happens 
um, to be a high-tech product that happens to be a green energy product. And I was off to the races. <laughs> wow, that's quite a journey. Journeys are always much more Excellent. interesting than careers, I think. And I like the racehorse analogy because the urgency is now. We need a steeplechaser. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so it's been a, a, a very uh, exhilarating journey ever since um, making the decision to uh, pivot to um, co-develop the hydrogen economy in South Africa and the fuel cell industry specifically. So I guess we, we always get guests to look into their crystal balls. Ten years from now, where do you see sort of the energy mix somewhere like South Africa and where do you see Bambili being? Um, so I think that, you know, um, so some people use crystal balls in Africa, we use bones. Yes. <laughs> so if I Sorry, in the UK they bones. use tea leaves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever medium exactly, works, right? Whatever yeah, medium yeah, works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure somebody who sits next to a diamond mines throws some diamonds, Absolutely. you know, when they sparkle and they tell exactly. a story. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think my, 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 my ambitions for us is that we, um, we have settled on an energy mix that's sustainable for the country. And at the same time, we've used these sunrise industries to create new jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are, and we're able to, 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 to steady the coal interests we have. We've reimagined how we use our coal interests in a way that is complementary to the environment um, because there's technology innovation all the time. So um, I think uh, that if we are able to um, use this combination of, of technologies, it will serve us well as a country to be able to have a stronger economy. Um, and hopefully more employment, um, fresher air, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that be, and the fresh air seems very um, insignificant. But when you think about respiratory illnesses in South Africa, mm. um, if we can uh, alleviate them and diminish them, I think we would have done well as a country. Seems a perfect place to end. Perfect way to end. Zanelli Mbatha, thank you so much. Really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Zanelli. The issue of the moment perfectly explained. You've been listening to The Arc Insider. If you're interested, Arc publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can subscribe to these at info at africarisconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now.